0: I think journalism has the task, of course, to inform, but also to inspire progress and to give people the means, the information and perhaps the inspiration they need to make societies move forward. I think a good story that, apart from conveying information and facts, is a story that is meaningful and that has a message to convey, that will make people who have read, seen or listened to the story think differently about the topic or give them the chance to think differently about things that have been reflecting on.
1: Welcome to Ecosystems for Change, where we co-author the playbook on transforming communities by amplifying the impact of changemakers around us. Whether you are an entrepreneur or otherwise changemaker yourself, a citizen who loves their community with a passion and wants to see it thrive whether you are a mentor, investor, support organization, advisor, philanthropic funder, economic developer, or policymaker. Learn the practical tools and proven tactics of ecosystem builders from all around the world to better support the dreamers, doers, tinkerers, and makers in your community by taking a systems approach to social change. I'm your host, Annika Horn. Welcome to my first interview of season six. I sat down with no other than Eva Maria Verführt, publisher and editor-in-chief at Tea After Twelve. While based in Frankfurt, Germany, Eva's storytelling spans around the globe to talk about new solutions to old problems to create a better world. As you'll see in this conversation, Eva is driven by a deep desire to transform journalism in a way that moves beyond mere disaster reporting and emphasizes inspiration and progress which is why I'm so excited to kick off season six with her. Let's go to Frankfurt. Thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. I'm really excited to have you on the show. If I I were coming to your ecosystem, which I understand to be really a global ecosystem, where would you take us to see the world through your eyes and get an experience for what you do?
0: Well, I would take you to a trip around the world to many different places A colourful and inspiring, uh, certainly surprising trip to changemakers and pioneers uh, in different places. Let's say we could start with Paul in Nairobi, who has built a machine to turn organic waste into biofuels and is helping his marginalised area in Nairobi or to the first female graffiti sprayer in Afghanistan, Shamsia, who is or has been coloring the walls of Kabul with feminist pictures, beautiful pictures, wonderful. We would go to Ghana, to ARAM and his game design studio, where he's developing games around the African legend superhero series. We could go and visit Luisa in Peru, who's the first transgender politician and very committed to her community to activists in the U.S. that are investing in ethically questionable companies in order to get into their shareholder meetings and talk about environmental and ethical standards. Or lawyers in Europe who are fighting for the climate rights of people in court, quite successfully, many times. We could even go to Iraq, to the youth movement, who are celebrating peace every year, trying to unite a divided society. There. What I want to show is that as storytellers for an international magazine, our ecosystem is the digital world. There are no limits, no boundaries of places, or we're not connected. I'm not. I don't feel connected to any specific local community or environment, but to many creativity hubs and people all around different countries.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Eva. The audience doesn't know this, but you are headquartered, located in Frankfurt. But the reason I wanted to have you on the show is that the storytelling you're doing with T After 12 is not only global in reach and in the stories that you cover from all different corners of the world, but you take a very positive, forward-looking approach in how you tell those stories, which is something I really want to dive into a little bit later. Before we do so... I already sense a lot of really, really good stories that you just gave us a little taste of in different parts of the world. What is one story that has stuck with you that to you is a story well told that represents how we should be thinking about telling the stories of changemakers in our communities?
0: There are many. They are very different. Therefore, it's quite difficult for me to pick one. I
1: always have the impression
0: that others are missing out but if I have to choose one, perhaps I would like to choose um, the story of Marino Morikawa, a Peruvian environmental scientist who grew up in Peru as the son of Japanese parents. He was educated as an environmental scientist with his PhD in bioindustrial science and went to work in Japan in laboratories at the university to do nanotechnology, water quality management. He was quite into his career when... His father called him from Peru and told him that the wetlands very close to his place were so contaminated that officials had actually given up on them. That they were about to, I don't know, put sand on it and close like the, the whole uh, natural environment down. That was when Marino Morikawa decided he had to stop where he was. He went back to his home in Peru, talked to the major, said, "Please give me one year time. I want to try to fix this." took all the money of his bank, uh, took a credit from the banks, went to camp in the wetlands to see what was the reason for the pollution, went back to Japan to his laboratories to search for a solution how to save the, the wetlands back, back in his home. And this took quite some time, but then when he came back to Peru, it just took him four months to actually decontaminate the entire wetlands. And he did so only using uh, materials, um, that were actually there that you could buy in the, in the shops down there. He, um, worked together with the community. And now, if you see the pictures, it's amazing. You have these contaminated, polluted wetlands back then. And right now it's the, the birds have returned. Fish are in the lakes again. It's, a, it's become a really beautiful landscape, and they've saved the wetlands together.
1: I love that. That just gives me goosebumps. Eva, um, I, I know that this is the kind of stories that you tell at Tea After Twelve. So we, before we move on, tell us a little bit more about Tea After Twelve. How did it come about? What is it now? Where is it going? What, sort of, what is the tea? And why is it called Tea After Twelve? Okay, I'll start with the
0: story perhaps, um, of TF12, of the name of TF12. TF12 has been founded by me and Sarah, and we were working in development cooperation organization before. We were already having an online magazine uh, at the company we were working for, and we were into journalism and PR. But we noticed we were more and more getting fed up with the fact that in the news industry, you always Kind of talking about the same topics, you, it, you, it can become quite. Um, hel- you can become a feeling of helplessness or powerlessness when you, when you consume media and when you write media and when you're getting into all these problems and crises we are facing all the time. And we have the impression we we really need to shift the talk. We need to talk about something else. We need to talk about how to get along, how to advance, how to progress, and not only about the problems we have, which is important too. But then at some point you have to advance, you go, have to go beyond this. And as we were working in develop- we're working in development corporation already, we met all these people that had amazing projects and that were changing things, that were ha- actually having an impact in their communities. It was pretty obvious. So um, we decided we wanted to report about that. We wanted to report how to get on. And that's where the title TF12 comes from. Um, there is a German saying, it's a bit weird to have an English uh, title <laughs> based on a German say- idiom, but it just worked pretty well, um, that says it's kurz um, vor zwölf, it's close to 12, it's close uh, close to noon or midnight, whatever. which means we're very close to disaster, we can't really do anything about it anymore. It's, it's almost too late already. And we said, okay, this is the way lots of news, coverage works it will always tell you what is really uh distressful at the moment but we want to look at the other side so we say let's sit down have a cup of tea and think about how to get across 12 o'clock like how to get how how to move on or how have we moved on before because there have been so many moments when we thought it's five to twelve and we survived somehow so let's look at how did we survive how did we get along how can Mm -hmm.
1: we move on Wonderful. T After 12 as a platform, and you already touched on, rather than reporting on all the misery and the disasters and the end of the world every few weeks, you chose to find stories and tell stories that have a different narrative, a narrative that's perhaps more positive and that just inspires more hope. Tell us a little bit more about how do I put this? Are you reporting on the same topic but with a different lens? Or how do you choose those stories? And and do you ever feel like you're neglecting all the bad news stories by only focusing on the good? How do you achieve balance when you talk about the issue of, for example, environmentalism? There's so much disaster that, you know, I just want to go lay in bed and hide. How do you balance this telling the truth, whatever that is, but also highlighting positive aspects do you know what i mean
0: i think i do um first of all i don't really like talking about positive news because it usually usually isn't really positive news to be honest because in we talk about solution-based journalism so we look out for solutions but to in order to need a solution there is a problem usually so while we put the solution first in the story, we then dive into the problem. So a big part of the story is always the problem because in order to judge whether a solution is viable or not, you need to understand the problem pretty well. You know, you need to get to its roots, right? So, um, we are talking quite a lot about problems actually <laughs> and about disasters. And what's also very important to us is to always make very clear. When we actually report about, uh, about a solution or a potential solution, in what sense this is actually a solution or what are its limits? What can it actually achieve and what can it not achieve? This is very important. Otherwise, it's not trustworthy at all and won't serve anybody, right? So we're always making very clear. What is very important to us when choosing the stories is as we have an international audience. This was also one of the founding ideas of TF12 that we said, we thought that we need to have a global view. Many media are just national media or at least in their language realms and they report about things that happen in, in their communities. But in order to find solutions or to advance, it's sometimes really important to look elsewhere because there are people out there, there are countries, there are communities that have found solutions or ideas which you can adapt or which can serve or we can make, which can make you think in a different way. So therefore it was very important for us to make T after 12 in English language and on in the international level. And when people approach us with stories, we always look at if these stories have a potential for adaptability in other places. If something is very useful in one place, but it's so specific for this community that then it's not interesting for the rest of the world, perhaps. If there is a spark of inspiration that could give ideas to somebody else elsewhere in the world, then it's worth being reported.
1: I have a couple of follow-up questions. First off, I agree 100%. I think this is such an important aspect of the storytelling, as we're not just telling stories to make people feel good or for the sake of telling stories, which is valuable in its own right. But if we're able to tell stories so that someone else can learn from that experience, be inspired, or maybe even dig a little bit deeper and figure out whether that solution might work in their community, I think that's a really excellent public service. So thank you for doing that um secondly how do you guys operate you're based in germany you have this global reach you get stories from all around the world how does that function in practice
0: first perhaps to get back to the uh, to the point of of the impact the story i told you about marie murkala is also very interesting because afterwards so many people approached us we have comments from i think i just counted them it's about 13 countries of people with like very specific concerns that are all saying we have this lake, we have this wetlands, we have this natural environment close to our, to our home place, and we want to know your methods because we want to do it here at home as well. So this is what makes a story very va- valuable when other people notice that this gives them the the means to form something in their home place. Of course, not every story has such an outcome, but there are really many stories we publish where we get lots of commentaries or um, reactions from from the audience who either just say it's amazing or, and this is quite often as well, say we're working on something similar here, can we get in touch please? So the, this is like uh, what we're actually heading for, they were saying it would be so amazing if people get in touch across our stories. Um, how is it working? Um, there are Sarah and I, <laughs> <at> Frankfurt <laughs> and Bern in Germany. At the beginning, the, our most important network were partner organizations that had international networks of startup c- uh, communities, creativity hubs. And we reached out to them and said, we, th- there's this magazine, we need your input. Do you have good stories for us? And then it's, um, it widened. There was TF12 and people started approaching us. And everyone who approaches us with a story or with the will to write a story is accepted. It's completely barrier-free. You don't have to be a journalist because what's important to us is to actually find stories um, that aren't out there yet, perhaps. We found quite some people and stories that haven't been on the internet before. And we can't do that by ourselves. So it's, this this network is very important to us. When someone writes from India that he wants to report about the project, then we'll try to figure out together how we're gonna do this. If it's a it's rather easy because you can just do the story, so to, to say, and we're gonna do the um do some editing afterwards to so it fits well to tf 12 If there's someone who says I can't write or I don't want to write, but I really want to get this story out, then we can either do an interview with the people of the story ourselves. We can find someone in India who does it. Or we can do an interview with that person and ask him or her, what is it you would like to tell, even though you can't write it down, tell it, going to write it down for you. There are very different ways how we are going to do it in the end. But the first thing that is really important for us is the story and to, to find, to dig it out. This is, and we're very open to any kind of suggestion.
1: How do you pick? themes and topics for the different issues that you publish and can you give us some examples of what past issues have been about?
0: Yes, exactly. We we are publishing in issues. One reason is that there's so many topics to talk about. Um, Find a way to make it consistent, to not have the idea reporting about everything and nothing. So we have different overall topics, which also makes it easier to find authors and stories because we can call out and say, okay, let's next topic is um, finances, environmental issues, do you know initiatives in your place that be were reporting about. Mm-hmm. And we had very diverse topics. The last ones were revolution. We looked at peaceful protests and um, resistance methods. Before we had a COVID issue actually, we looked at people who were getting active in the COVID pandemic. We had issues about finance we had issues about design and lifestyle actually our first issue was uh, vanity and urban
1: mobility let's imagine someone reaches out to you and says hey there's this project in my home country i would love to write about it but i've never written a story before what do you tell that person do you have a here's a five-step framework on how to write a great article or even when it comes to you writing a story about something that you haven't really worked in and have very little experience about, how do you frame out a story? Or is it just I sits down and it just flows out of you magically onto the page and makes a wonderful story? How do these good stories, what are they made up of? How do they work? Actually, it's often quite a discussion. <laughs> it doesn't just
0: flow. <laughs> um, I think the first step is to find out where the passion lies, like the essence mm-hmm. of the story. And that can be the passion of a person, if it's a person, it can be the passion behind a project. It can also be the passion of an author who really wants to get this message out, who has something that matters to him quite a lot. That's where you can get the most of it. Then comes the second step, which is trying to take a step back and get into the place of the audience. And this is the most difficult thing, especially when you have like a personal, um, when you're personally involved in the topic. Because then there are people out there who have a different view and who are perhaps not as interested in the topic as you are. You have to show them why this topic is interesting. And this is the point we often discuss quite a lot. When we write stories, quite a lot, the title, the introduction, to write it in a way that is interesting for the people, for the audience that's going to read it. And of course. It's an advantage writing for TF the twelve because we know there are people out there who are interested in stories of social change, of impact of um this is more difficult perhaps when you write for an audience that isn't so much into social change topics, right? So you have to see how can you surprise them. Surprise always works. Something they've never heard about, they didn't think would exist. Something that serves them in some way. Be it because it's such a fun story or exciting story, and that they like talking about it in the bar uh, at night with their friends. I think the, the crucial and the most difficult part is right. That is finding the essence and the start of it. And then it's very important that when you go on, you try to stay clear and very understandable, honest, and not exaggerate. Try to stay specific. Mm. Talk about the facts. Stick to the story itself. Because if it's a story, that's worth it. There's no need to go away or to, to to put more into it than there actually is. Um, never try to make things seem they are more than they actually are, because this makes um, a story lose trustworthiness. If you say there's this, let's say, um a solar energy solution for private homes, then it might be great to... Se- say somewhere in the text that this might not be a viable solution for apartment blocks in the city center, but it could be a real game changer for one family houses in the outskirts. Otherwise, people might read the text and notice, well, this is nothing for apartment blocks in the city center. This is a lie or this, this doesn't work. So if you make it clear that it's not even meant for that, the story is a lot more trustworthy.
1: I don't want to distract you from this awesome conversation, but I do want to let you know that I curate a fortnightly newsletter with resources, events, and behind-the-scenes insights into the show. I would love to pop into your inbox every two weeks to hand-deliver those goodies. Sign up through the link in the show notes, and now back to the show. I have to jump in here because as a German living in the US, there is so much... I wouldn't even call the news the news. It's... I don't know. I'm I'm probably spoiled, but growing up with, um, what's it called? Tagesschau and just German news reporting, I really feel like, and I was taught this in school, so I'm definitely biased, but we were always taught that the media, the news, is the fourth power in the state. Whereas I find in the US, the media really just plays to a lot of the will of political parties. And there is very little neutrality. There is no, there's very little objectivity and it's really hard to use them. To see the media as something that has a balancing effect or a fact-checking effect, it's really more so something that further amplifies what a certain party or a certain personal organization wants the truth to be. So I really appreciate what you're saying about don't exaggerate. If it's good, it's good and there's no need and Always be clear on the potential and the limitations of every story that you present. I can really appreciate that because it gives me some guardrails on how to think about the message, the solution, and the value of what I'm about to get invested in. So I think that's some really, really good advice. If uh, on T After 12, obviously it is a an online magazine. It's the written word and pictures. But as you're thinking about formats and channels, both in how you produce stories and how you consume stories. What are your favorites? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? How do you like to tell stories through which medium?
0: I really love long formats. Actually, not every topic is made for a long story, but if you have, if the content is there, if the story is there and it's worth it, then I really love long stories and in depth stories because this makes gives the opportunity to show the complexity of a, of a topic. I do like text. I think people still read a lot of text. You need to have beautiful visuals on most internet media anyway. You can actually attract people with long text, And this is also a surprise. This has been a surprise to me in our work because it's one of these rules of journalism. Try to keep it short. Try to make it a bit sensational. Be very, very critical. They're all of Mm -hmm. these, these guidelines for journalists and reporting. We, from the beginning, we had these long formats and people were saying, so this is, this could be difficult on the internet. Who's going to read long texts? And, um, one of our first stories was a story about Amar from Egypt, who is a graffiti painter. And we did an interview. It was about three hours long. Oh my God. Oh God. Okay, I had to write down the story in the end, and it was really impacting, it was really moving, because he could tell the whole story of the Arab Spring Revolution in in Egypt through his pictures. And he told me in the beginning that as social media was shut down and monitored so much, um, the protesters started communicating through the walls. At the mm-hmm. beginning, they just wrote their notes on the walls, and the graffiti painters started making huge morals at night documenting things that had happened so through his yeah. pictures he could guide me with his pictures through through the whole process through the whole and the text in the end became pretty long but we yeah. felt it was worth it we felt it was moving it was touching and it went viral in a way I would never have imagined it was one of the most successful stories we ever had and it was yeah, it was far too long in the end but <laughs> it was worth it and I think you should stick always to the to the principle, try to keep it short, never do longer than necessary, but sometimes long is very good. And if, if there's content in there, if there's for a long format, then look for it.
1: Now, if I imagine the next issue come out, we'll talk about that later, but you get all these stories from all around the world. You have all this excellent content on the website, the magazine is ready to be shipped, and then what? How in the world do you get all these stories out into the different corners of the world? Um, Since it's not a print magazine, I imagine you don't just put them in a mailer and send them out. How do you go about distribution and amplification of the content that you create?
0: What has worked very well for us is actually the network of partners. Building up networks with partner organizations who spread the news that the new issue is out. Also, the networks of authors who are pretty committed to the magazine. Then there's social media, of course. Facebook was amazing for us in the beginning because this is very international there. But social media have become a bit more difficult for us. On Facebook, especially because since they have the um, stronger regulations on political and social issues. There was a time when all environmental topics were blocked. And uh, you can subscribe for being um, a media organization publishing political and social issues, but you have to subscribe for one country. You can't subscribe for one country. So this is was actually our end on Facebook. And it is becoming quite difficult on social media. Even if, if social media is strong, I think you will always need other kinds of networks to spread your message.
1: Absolutely. And I love the partner approach. Um, that actually brings me to my next question, Eva. A global magazine looks fantastic, super high production value, writers from all around the world. How in the world do you finance that? Because you're not selling the magazine, right? I can just go to teaafter12.com and I can read the stories. I can enjoy all of that content and I never pay a dime. How in the world do you make the money work?
0: Well, finance is a hot topic in journalism. I bet. One part how we're financing it is that many people put in a lot of efforts and dedication for free. It started off completely voluntarily. Authors wrote for it just out of the excitement or the passion, or the, the wish to get the story out. Um, and... The core team as well, we started voluntarily. We said, we thought that it would be good to get the stories out to show how it looks like and then try to find, um, opportunities for revenue streams. This has turned out quite difficult with an international audience, actually. At the same time, there's never any option to make it paid content because people are writing for TF12 to get their stories out. It can't. They, they can't be hidden. There's just no option at all. You can make a subscription model or like a voluntary support model, stuff like that could be interesting, perhaps. Um, what happened to us is actually that we were very busy getting T after 12 running and working and were a bit overrun by the success. So we didn't really have time, much time for other things than just getting content, content production running. And then we were approached by different organizations that were doing these stories, and the stories were great, the pictures were great, the visuals were were amazing, and um, the reach was good. And so they were saying, like, can't you do that for us? Can't you tell our stories in that way? Wow. founded a communications agency besides, and we thought that was our big opportunity because we could make money from the communications work, from the... Um, waiting for other companies there's monies to fund t after twelve This could have been an opportunity. We are now noticing that communications work is running well. it's perfect, but we don't have so much time to do t after twelve anymore so revenues are still a challenge
1: one hundred percent i think and and I see this in the u s and elsewhere local newspapers going under. I think even some of the big media outlets being um, bought out by hedge fund managers and other companies, there's just less and less capital available to do good storytelling and to get these stories in front of the people who need them and to inspire our communities. So it's a problem I see everywhere. And I really, really hope that something can open up for you to put tf 12 on the front burner again so that we can get more of those stories out. You and I met in Hamburg before you launched T or right at the beginning. And then it really, like you said, it went viral. It just went through the roof. What do you attribute that early success to? Because it really blew up in a very short time. What do you attribute that, that success to? I
0: mean, it's hard to say, right? I think it's two things. First of all, I mean we met before in Hamburg. We did quite some networking work before. We went mm-hmm. around conferences, tried to meet people, talk to people and told them we have this project kind of getting on. Um we'd like to talk to you about it, we'd like to know your opinion about it. We need I mean needed that work to get the stories, right? We we needed the the connections to get the stories for the first issue. We're very into networking and partnering and we got very good feedback. Many people were enthusiastic about the idea, which surprised me as well. I thought that if we come along and say we want to have a new online magazine, people will say, "Oh gosh, this will never work. How can it?" But the idea of having the the pioneer stories, the change maker stories, and and the solution obviously catch people's interest, and I think this was. What helped us a lot in the beginning, because we already had a network of supporters or of sympathizers at least, people that were enthusiastic about the idea when we launched and to spread the news. And then I guess that somehow the format convinced I mean it spread afterwards. But you always need, like the beginning, of course, you need to have something to start from.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um Eva, T After 12 has been on a hiatus because you guys have been incredibly busy doing paid work, which is totally fair. When can we expect a new issue? Is that on the horizon anytime soon?
0: Well, I hope so.
1: Um,
0: I guess that by next year we should
1: be on track again. 2024. All right. Excellent. For everyone listening, as soon as T After 12 is back with a new issue, you can believe me, I will let everyone know and shout it from the rooftops here in the US. Thank you, Eva. Two more questions before we make our way towards the end of this interview. Number one, are you seeing any trends in storytelling, in solution journalism? What's going on in that sphere that you're moving? And what is something maybe you're excited about, something you're concerned about? Where is this whole space headed, especially now that we've established that finance is, is super tight? Where do you see this going?
0: I'm not a professional for journalistic trends. <laughs> it's pretty difficult, but I do see two trends, perhaps. Like, the one is a bit the pessimistic trend. Um, making money with journalism is getting more and more complicated. I think it's common sense that quality journalism and good storytelling is key. But at the same time, it's what is most expensive. Mm. And you know the story, perhaps, about Buzzfeed who just closed down their investigative um, Mm -hmm. department, even though it was very successful. On the other hand, there's a lot of discussion since years among journalists, as far as I can see, that journalism has to change, that journalism needs to return to more quality, to more in-depth, to reporting the complexity, because journalists, of course, also notice that there is a negative bias caused by media, that um, fake news are spreading, that There's a huge loss of trust and confidence in all democratic institutions, including the media, that information people get obviously lead them to a certain kind of resignation. Mm -hmm. And that this old credo that as journalists, you need to be critical, you need to report about crisis, scandals, about things that are not going well, hoping that afterwards people will be so angry that they will change things, that Mm -hmm. this system doesn't work Anymore, we have so many information that that people rather get a feeling of despair or resignation if they notice all the things that are going bad. So uh, solutions journalism has been discussed for years now. When we started off, we didn't know the word yet; it just came up. Then um, there is the notion of explanatory journalism, more investigative journalism. There are lots of um, efforts to debunk fake news or to publish fact-checking articles, and so on. So there's a lot of reflection in journalism about how to, to do better journalism, how to have a better in, uh, impact on society. At the same time, there are the limitations of the implementation. Of it.
1: And of getting people paid for good work. I don't know if you can answer this, Eva, but to you, what is the role of journalism and storytelling? What is the power behind doing what you do on a global scale?
0: I think journalism has the task, um, of course, to inform, but also to inspire progress and to give people the means, the information, and perhaps the inspiration they need to make societies move forward. You can achieve this through news reporting in some way, of course, because it keeps people informed. But then a great story will, apart from that, also have an impact. and. I think a good story that apart from conveying information and facts is a story that is meaningful and that has a message to convey and that will make people who have read, seen or listened to the story think differently about the topic or give them the chance to think differently about things they've been reflecting on.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Eva. I think this kind of feeds into my next question, which is What piece of advice would you give to someone who's just starting out with storytelling, who maybe wants to tell the story of a project they're really passionate about in their community or wants to be a storyteller in their community? Where do they start?
0: I think to become a storyteller, the most important thing you need is a story to tell. You need to have a motivation and a message that you want to get across or something that you want to report on, that you have the impression is worth being reported and is worth getting into
1: Absolutely wonderful. Thank you Eva. Before we move on to the rapid fire round, I just want to let everybody know that they can find out more at tafter12.com. That's t-after-12 as a word.com. You will find this link in the show notes and you can also connect with Eva on LinkedIn. As always, all the links to these good things, all the links to these good things are in the show notes, sure. Why not? <laughs> All right, Eva, we have gotten to the rapid fire round where I start a sentence and just ask you to finish it for me. Are you ready? First off, storytelling is a powerful tool. tool. Wonderful. Who is a storyteller? This could be a person or an organization that you think everybody else should follow.
0: Perhaps not a storyteller, but an organization for people who are interested in Especially stories about changemakers, about new perspectives and improvements is Solutions Journalism Network, which is actually based in the US, collecting solution stories around the world and giving trainings for people who want to get into storytelling for journalists
1: and others to tell stories. Super. I'll also put that in the show notes. And lastly, What is one resource that has influenced you so much that you would recommend it to fellow storytellers?
0: I actually loved watching the videos of Hans Rosling, a scientist who has published a lot about the bias media is creating. And he says that through media, through news media, you see always one part of the world, but you don't see the other. And Mm -hmm. therefore this part is not wrong. But the other part is missing out. And this is mm-hmm. one from the part of success stories or of advancements.
1: Super. Wonderful. Eva, thank you so much for making the time and giving us this global insight into solution-based storytelling. I hope to have you back on the show someday and see what you're up to. Thank you so much. Be sure to find out more about Eva's work at teaafter12.com and connect with her on LinkedIn. A heartfelt thank you to my partners at Ecomap Technologies for making this season possible. Head over to Ecomap.tech to learn more about how they use modern technology to make ecosystem information more accessible. I pay my respect to the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live. The Monacan, Shawanda-Satula and Monahawk people. I recognize their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. This episode was produced by Yellow House Media.